Hi everyone, this is Beige for Public. Previously, we've explored the dark side of compassion and how it relates to narcissism and left-wing authoritarianism. Our guest today, independent scientist and writer J.D. Haltigan, adds to that discourse with some unique and sharp insights. Haltigan's work on attachment theory, emotional dysregulation, and vulnerable narcissism offers a context for understanding authoritarian behaviors, including ones focused on interpersonal condemnation or emotional control, which should be familiar to anyone paying attention over the past several years. He argues there's an imbalance in our culture between people more inclined toward empathy on the one hand or towards systemized thinking on the other, and that the resulting left-wing domination of our institutions has resulted in a kind of wholesale decline. As you'll hear in the episode, I take issue with some of what can seem like reductive over-classification of, quote, masculine and feminine behavior. Haltigan welcomes the pushback, and we have a wide-ranging and dynamic discussion. We also get into his views on social media, on COVID, and compare vulnerable and grandiose narcissists, deciding that Trump is basically Ric Flair. To read more from Haltigan, you can find him on Substack. A link is included in the intro to the episode. I grew up outside of Washington, D.C. My dad worked in the federal government. Uh, went to grade school there, high school. Um, and then for college, I did some uh, work at Mercier's College, which is in Erie, Pennsylvania. Um, was more of an athlete coming up through high school and, and college, but had interests in, you know, more intellectual stuff along the lines of, of criminal justice. And then when I was in uh, undergrad, uh, one of the, you know, I kind of was taking criminal justice courses, but really wasn't all that much challenged by it. Um, and I kind of wanted to pick up another major and psychology kind of came to the forefront of my thinking. And one of the current, well, one of the, the professors at the time that I was kind of being taught by had suggested looking into attachment theory. Um, and I'd never heard of that before. So I did a lot of reading on that, and then that led to, um, you know, the broader context of developmental psychology and attachment as a theory of uh, personality development, but it's also a theory of psychopathology. So I got interested in that. And right around that same time was sort of the um, emergence into the public consciousness of sort of the serial killing, you know, more like cinematic type stuff with Silence of the Lambs. And there was a couple of pop books like by John Douglas and Profilers and stuff like that. So I kind of got into that a little bit, the TV show Millennium. And it spurred my interest in sort of forensic psych, which was sort of really a merging of criminal justice and psychology. So I did at the time a two-year Master of Arts in forensic psych in Vermont at Castleton State college which has since changed its name but it was the first one of the first programs in forensic psych that kind of drew on that sort of emergence of forensic psych into the public consciousness and it was a it was a research-based program so I was really kind of continuing really what I was doing in undergrad reading I got more into the empirical side of psychology as opposed to you know I was I had interest in profiling but it was more you know, sort of less 
rigorous than really looking into psychology proper. So I finished that. And then I did a little bit of work um, as a research analyst. Then I did some work in upstate New York at a residential facility for troubled youth. Um, and these youth that I was working with for those two years in upstate New York all had basically backgrounds of sexual uh, problems. So it was a particularly unique population from that standpoint. And of course, they all had other issues relevant to, you know, general conduct problems and, and oppositional problems. And their backgrounds were all marked by, you know, dramatic uh, chaos in their lives and so forth and so on. And then finally, you know, after that, after that couple of years, I was able to decide to make it a, make it a mission to do my PhD in research. And I, I ultimately did a PhD in developmental psychology at the University of Miami in Florida, and then did some postdocs that continued sort of researching um, attachment, but getting into the more of the evolutionary biology side of, of attachment. So moving from sort of an environmental stance on things to a more biological understanding of human development and merging those two and sort of looking at sort of the nature and nurture debate within the context of a pretty hardcore research. And then most recently I finished off a, I think it was a four or five year appointment at the University of Toronto in psychiatry, where I was more or less just continuing my work in psychopathology, um, methodological work, looking at how we map symptom dimensions of, of mental health, mental illness, with a particular interest in the sort of depression side of things, anxiety, neuroticism, and so forth. So summing it up, that's kind of how I ended up. Right now, it, you know, given the state of affairs and, and academia with some of the chaos that's going on, and, and, and I'm sure listeners to the podcast know and readers of, of the Substack know you know, it's pretty crazy. So right now I'm an independent scientist continuing my mission, writing on Substack um, and currently sort of on the periphery of, of academia, looking to, you know, hopefully ultimately get back in and, and to do good science. I love science. And I think it's important, especially given the social climate that we're living amidst. Yeah. Uh, and you have stated that you left your last, this university position that you were just talking about when your contract ended, but that in the current environment, you didn't expect it would be renewed. And, you know, we hear so much about the environment in academia these days, but I would love to hear something about your personal experience, how it impacted your work. I know that there was a, a DEI lawsuit. Um, I think that's a really interesting case presented as a First Amendment issue. So maybe we can get into that. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, as I was progressing through several of the postdocs, you could see it worsening more and more with the, I mean, basically what was happening is um, the truth, if you could put that word in quotes, is, you know, universal phenomena, laws and, and, and relations that govern human behavior were becoming completely mangled. I mean, I mean, I think the classic example that's currently a hot, you know, cultural uh, debate is the gender stuff and it just got so insane and that that progressed into a broader rubric of diversity equity and inclusion which you know it was no longer about merit or rigor or or the quality of the work that you were doing um it was all about you know 
diversity of, of skin color and um, not viewpoint. And that really, you know, impacts the quality of the work that's being produced. It was degrading. Um, you can't explore group differences anymore. I mean, frankly, if you're looking at uh, sex-based differences in mental health, you know, you run into trouble even because, you know, two sexes, is sort of a cultural war issue now with the gender identity insanity that's that's off the rails. I mean, that's really no no way to soft pedal what's happening with that. Um, yeah. And then the DEI stuff came. You know, I mean, every all these academic positions now, whether you're you're in a, a position or you're looking to get into a position or trend, they require all these diversity, equity, and inclusion statements um, that are totally political litmus tests that have nothing to do with the quality of the question that you're asking in science or, you know, what you're trying to explain by science. And so, you know, I, I sort of basically got, I've had, you know, I had enough of it. It was just sort of depressing really in a way, even though I'm not sort of inclined to that mindset, it just, it makes, you know, you, when you do science, it's hard work, especially with data, getting things right going back and checking your analyses, writing code. And so it was just sort of enough is enough. And I posted on my Substack a sort of a, a pseudo DEI statement, which I submitted as actually part of an application package and where I just basically said this stuff is ridiculous. So in, in writing the DEI statement, which was required for the application, I basically turned it on its head and said, look, this is, this is not about science. It's not diversity of viewpoint. It's, you know, it's, it's limiting the quality of the work that can be done at this particular school. And one, a law firm had seen it, they picked it up and, and they were interested in whether or not I would be sort of um, somebody that would, would consider taking this, you know, upon myself in the context of a First Amendment violation of compelled speech. And I had applied and was interested in applying to several positions that fit descriptions of what I would want to do and sort of to be able to flourish and produce research. And so um, with, with that connection, we, we filed a lawsuit against a particular university in California that you know, hopefully will move forward, um, you know, given the fact that this stuff is compelled speech and, you know, it, it really makes it hard to um, feel like you're being considered in, 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 in a fair way for, for the position. Yeah. Was the environment to you personally stifling? Like, how did you find the relationship with your peers as this sort of war on, you know, as things have progressed over the past, things have intensified in the past several years, even though it's been decades in the making? A hundred percent. And I think for me, it was a unique case because I'm, I was always an athlete leading up to college. So more of a highly masculine type in social science, which is not at all very masculine in terms of its just general composition of uh, professorial, you know, um, colleagues and so forth. So I was finding it stifling because you couldn't speak frank, frankly, you couldn't speak in a way that um, was sharp, but also true. And so it just became stifling in the sense that it became more about people's feelings than about the actual truth 
whether that was what you know whether that had to do with a specific research question that you were interested in say you know sex-based differences in uh depression uh you know group-based differences in in uh iq stuff like that you you couldn't you couldn't do anything and then you had colleagues especially in social science or i would say you know, people that i worked alongside i wouldn't say they were particular colleagues but just insane uh promulgation of gender identity nonsense the pronouns sort of becoming out of hand and even though i think that you know everybody should be allowed to you know have their say say what they want it just became completely stifling because you could see this stuff unspooling in a way that was completely ludicrous and so you knew you were at risk for speaking frankly and it was just time to sort of you know, find a way to push back and to speak back. And, and fortunately, uh, Twitter, which later became X, has been a, a way for me to do that, uh, while at the same time feeling as if I'm still contributing and learning and, and asking solid questions. I mean, academia at the highest level is, is sort of a very disagreeable environment. That's what people do in academia is we, we, we challenge each other. It's sort of a, a battle, a ring. And it's not a longhouse. And so that's what it was becoming really. And it was just, it was just tiresome. You couldn't do good work in that environment. It was stifling. Um, and, you know, look, I'm all for, you know, saying, you know, th there's a certain level of political correctness that is understandable um, and you can't demean and you, but, but at the same time, it was just a complete, you know, clown show in terms of how things were being run and what was being said or considered to be, you know, good work. And so it was just sort of enough, enough is enough. Um, and, and Substack and, and Twitter later to become X really became the two platforms, much like I think public to speak out and, and, and mm. to tell the truth. Yeah. Uh, I'd love to jump into some of your writing and, and your research. So there's been this proliferating interest in and, and literature in the past decade or so on left-wing authoritarianism and what we might call the psychopathology of woke progressive activism. You know, for obvious reasons, there's more interest. Um, and I'd like to talk about some of your particular contributions to the discourse, including your research on emotional dysregulation. And then this um, autism research that you reference and build on um, the empathizing systemizing theory, if you could kind of uh, break that down for us. I mean, these are what we would call like normative sex-based behaviors, right? So if you could kind of tell us how those are measured and why it's significant to, to look at behaviors at the individual and on a larger macro social level, um, that would be, yeah, that would be great if we could start there. So sure. I'll try to kind of jump around here a little bit. So my work eventually in psychopathology sort of got, got into um, the particular clinical issues of depression, internalizing disorders, which include depression, anxiety, and more broadly, if you can think of it this way is, is anything to do with emotional dysregulation. So we all have an, you know, a certain propensity to all these different emotions, depression, anxiety, fear, but how do we regulate them? 
and that's actually informed as well by attachment because attachment is really all about a theory of emotional regulation. So the idea of being an attachment as an environmental theory, if you have sort of a good or working relationship or manageable relationship in which your caregiver provides you with sort of a secure base, you learn how to regulate emotion. What's happening now with the left is a complete dysregulation of emotion. Um, and, and, you know, you, 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 you think back, liberal tears was sort of the stereotype. They're more prone to feeling-based emotions. And that's manageable. But when it becomes completely dysregulated and over, overwhelmingly emotional, it, become, it can become very authoritative. Um, no ability to control emotions to understand with some sort of uh, coherency what is happening in the environment or grossly exaggerating uh, unique events that, that happen rarely into sort of these crises that, you know, climate crises, for example, is a good example. Mm-hmm. Um, just completely blowing out of proportion what is happening. And I I began to see, especially right around the Floyd, uh, George Floyd incident in Minneapolis and the ensuing Black Lives Matter protests, a really domineering, authoritative kind of cluster B personality, along with this depressive uh, contribution where it was just, it was just sort of like, a total uh, left-wing push to create interpersonal relationships in which they were sort of this minority of this, this, this small group who are trying to impose ridiculous um, theatrics and claims on other people. Uh, And you can see this in some of the writings that I've done where you have the iconic image of, in one of the Black Lives protests, you know, a white uh, woman or white young person with their fist raised over some diner at a, at a dining establishment. And that sort of cued me into all this sort of thinking about how are these traits in these, these clinical descriptions of anxiety and neuroticism, which is a personality trait, but how are these combining to sort of scale macrosocially to create this sort of left-wing dysregulated way of silencing other people? So you take an event, you blow out a proportion, you claim racism, you claim sexism, you claim crime, climate crisis, catastrophizing, and you use that as a cudgel interpersonally to shut down anybody that disagrees with those assertions. And so that really became the idea behind the internalizing and cluster B Substack article that I posted. Um, and it was funny because uh, Jordan Peterson read it, you know, agreed that it was substantively correct. And it was, of course, a sort of a broad based overview. But really what's happening with left wing authoritarianism is it is a authoritarianism driven by vulnerable narcissism as opposed to sort of a grandiose authoritative narcissism. And, you know, I talk a little bit about that in some writings. There are two different types of narcissism. One is sort of more of the, the Trumpian, grandiose, agency-based, I'm right. the greatest, Muhammad Ali type. And then yeah. you have vulnerable narcissists who, who are 
the, a core feature is that they are emotionally sort of passive and, and dysregulated, but that becomes then sort of the context for their later authorita- authoritarian uh, behaviors, which become more about condemning and they're more interpersonally based as opposed to physical based uh, ways of controlling others. So you get this sort of uh, borderline nature and how they try to control people through interpersonal relationships and accusations of abandonment or you're ignoring a climate crisis or you're committing, uh, for example, in the gender stuff, you're committing genocide against trans people if you tell them to to wait a little bit. Uh, sort of this, you know, if, if readers or viewers are aware of the, the series Bates Motel, this sort of right. interpersonal, dysregulated way of controlling people like Norma Bates did with her son. And so that then seeds into sort of the idea behind the, the trait empathization versus trait systemization, which is actually Baron Cohn's theory of why autism uh, might have arisen. And basically the idea is that in sex-based differences, women are more empathetic. Men tend to be more uh, numerical, uh, interested in structure, interested in relations between X and Y. And those are just normal sex-based differences at scale. That doesn't mean that any individual might cross those lines. We know, you know, there's obviously there's many um, gifted women mathematicians, and likewise, there's many, you know, men that tend to be a little bit more soft or cuddly or whatever, however you want to put it. But the idea here is that we've gone so far in our institutions on the trade empathization side that everything's mm-hmm. become a longhouse. It's all based on feelings. There's no structure. It's all just sort of this, this sort of plastic goo of, of emotion. And that leads to chaos when it's at scale. And that's what's happening in all of our institutions. The longhouse is a way of, there's some good articles on what that really means, the longhouse. But basically, in short form, it's just a way of sort of female relating around relationships and and feelings as opposed to order and structure. And once you once you go too far that way, it can bleed into some of that left-wing authoritarianism because everything becomes about feelings. You're committing racism. You're committing injustice. You're committing uh, genocide. And in the case of COVID, you're, if you open up, you're committing eugenics. So it's feeling based that gives the sort of license for this emotional dysregulation and left-wing authoritarianism to mm. then, to then you know, be used against the, the quote-unquote vast normal population that, that knows these are isolated events or that you're not committing genocide by opening up um, or that you're not committing genocide by telling someone who's confused about their gender to, to wait for uh, a year or two. And so, you know, the classic example that I draw upon in politics is you look at some of the cities that are in chaos and, and Mike and, and readers of the public know San Francisco is one, New York. Uh, many of the female governors um, or mayors of these cities, the, the, everything is based on empathy. And when you have that sort of mindset, things get chaotic. There's no structure. There's no order. And if you contrast that with, say, someone like Governor Ron DeSantis, 
who's you know a little bit higher on that systemization, uh, broad autism sort of phenotype, which many researchers are, structure and order. How do you systematize to uh, enable effective government or responses to disasters like hurricanes that are now approaching? And he's very, very good at that. But that's also one of the drawbacks that some of his critics are saying is limiting his appeal in the race is that he's got sort of more of that sort of, you know, so high on that sort of systemization and structure and order that he has, you know, sort of that inability to connect with people. It's just, it's, it's slight, but everything's on a continuum. So, you know, if you're looking for. Dentist is on the spectrum. (laughs) Well, yeah. If you consider everything a spectrum, I would put myself on it as well. So it's, Mm -hmm. it's just an acknowledgement that you're a little bit, higher than you know the average person on interest in mechanical relations between uh x and y for example but it makes it makes for a very effective leader because he can then observe how things relate how to get things done but if you go too far the other way like kathy hogel or london breed where there's just no order it's just feelings it's just we have to be concerned about you know, the feelings of everybody, it leads to utter chaos. I mean, those are two classic examples that come to mind. And of course, uh, Chicago prior to Lori Lightfoot, you know, leaving was a good example. And then it's just what, what I feel that, you know, what's happening in our institutions is happening in our cities. So it's, there's no real disconnect between what is happening in the, in the academic institutions, what I experienced Versus what's happening and what's leading to chaos in our cities. And so that's sort of, in a way, it's when you see that happening to to a large degree around you, it becomes disconcerting. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, even where I'm at now in Pittsburgh, there's, there's similar crises of, of it's basically San San Francisco on a smaller scale. Some of the stuff that's happening in downtown Pittsburgh but we have a, a, a particular political race coming up in the fall where you have the same breakdown, sort of a progressive left-wing socialist female person who wants to be county executive versus a, a, a more of a, a structure-based male who is focusing on order, who wants to bring order to the city. And the questions like, for example, do you do you allow for juvenile justice incarceration or is that seen as completely bad? And so we can't have incarceration because if we did more black and brown kids might be incarcerated. So that might mean there's some sort of inherent systemic racism going on as opposed to just they're disproportionately involved more in criminal activity. And we need to understand better why that is. So uh, these are just all examples of, of kind of what I'm talking about. I'm wondering if you can think of any inverse examples. You know, those are very clear examples, Ron DeSantis versus London Breed. I mean, it can't just be that that women have been elected to office in too many, you know, progressive cities, but like, are there other examples that come to mind? Women who are more, um, you know, analytical systems, analytical in their, in their um, orientation, or I know that, you know, Trudeau is a, a good example I, but does this break down more to to sex based differences or more to political ideology, or is it kind of a co evolution of these things? 
Well, I think it's a co-evolution. I think, you know, you have more of the collectivist communist mindset that tracks with, I think, women in general, because it's more of a relational collectivist, uh, you know, ideology versus, um, you know, more capitalistic individual agency based uh, ideologies that are, you know, more agency based. Now, as far as the, the, women examples i draw on many i think for example if you look at they're not politicians per se but like heather mcdonald or camilla paglia or um you know even even like someone like i was watching the debate the the republican debate the other night and i mean i think nikki haley comes to mind even though she has some policies and decisions that are more you know for example the ukraine we have to be concerned about them which is more of a sort of empathetic but at the same time if you looked at her demeanor um, very, very systems-based in, in a way, very disagreeable with Vivek on stage. So not your prototypical woman in that sense. Um, or Kaylee so- is very pro, I, I mean, pro-war, right? You're talking about her support for the war in Ukraine? Yeah, I would say she's, she's pro-war in the sense that uh, diplomatically, you know, she's for continuing that effort to fund Ukraine to, to push back against Russia. And yeah, I'm not I mean, a... I wouldn't think of that as like empathetic. <laughs> well, <laughs> empathetic in the way. sense, well, <laughs> empathetic in the sense that we have to care about a, a nation that's being invaded by quote unquote Putin, who's a bully in a way. So if you frame it like that, it's mm. we have to protect those who are less fortunate in being invaded by this monster Putin. That's the, the mindset versus say someone that's like, we need to focus our money back in the in our own country and get out and let, let the poor souls in Ukraine f- fend for themselves. So if you look at it that way, it's more of an empathetic response, but yes, at the end of the day, it's still fueling war and, and chaos. So again, um, these things aren't pure, distillations there's going to be a little bit of variation in there um yeah but, but just kind of pushing know. to see you know where where that theory like how yeah. we can put it into real life terms and and um you know just think about it a little bit yeah absolutely and that's the key i think for the larger public is we we think in categories for good reason and that's mm-hmm. important especially around things like sex binary but at the same time traits like personality traits and clinical descriptions of uh, mental health, those are all on spectrum. So we have a little bit more, a little bit less of all of these. And it becomes categorical in nature once you reach a certain threshold at which you need to seek clinical help. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, for example, the idea that the someone is depressed or not as a categorical diagnosis is a misnomer. We know from uh, statistical work and sophisticated methodological analyses is that things like depression and anxiety um, and, and so forth, they're not categorical in nature. They're, they're dimensional, which means we all, again, have a little bit more, a little bit less. Each day we might feel a little bit more, a little bit less, but some people are chronically at the high end and they are considered depressed, but depression is not a categorical disorder, say like you have cancer or you don't. And that's what I think the lay public really misunderstands about some of this stuff. 
Um, or or they, they don't misunderstand it. They're just not aware of it. Um, and so kind of informing the public about the dimensional nature of mental health um, and personality is crucial uh, to understand how that's influencing politics, how that's influencing what's happening in our cities. So sort of that's that's the whole idea behind my Substack really is to sort of integrate mental health, psychopathology research and connecting with social policy so that people can understand how these things are related um, and why yeah. we're, we're seeing what we're seeing right now um, happening in, in our cities and towns. Um, and I don't, I, I think, I don't think I'm, you know, hyper, hyperbolic when I'm, when I'm looking at the, what, what's happening. I mean, the cities are, are really crumbling. I mean, you can't deny that, you know, in San Francisco, Nordstrom just left. I mean, so it's not, it's not your imagination that's playing with you. We have a crisis at the border. We have cities that are crumbling. Um, and so, it's hard. It's easy to think you're living in an insane world when you're seeing this all around you, but you have to remind yourself that you're, you're really not, because the the left will try to gaslight you in a way, um, and so it becomes very difficult for someone who's a real systemizing person to kind of keep their footing in a world in which everything is feeling spaced and you don't know what's happening around you from one day to the next. I don't know if that can resonate or you, you can kind of understand what I'm trying to say there, but that's kind of yeah. what it's like to be in this environment. You've reached the end of this episode of the free version of Publix podcast. To access the full version, become a paying subscriber at public.substack.com.